Welcome to Christian Renewal Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning in to our series, Seven Letters, which is an in-depth study of the seven letters John recorded in the first four chapters of Revelation. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit christianrenewalhhi.org. We just have two more sermons in this series. Our next series, we're going to look at the life of Elijah, the life and ministry of Elijah. So make sure you pay attention for that. Life and ministry of Elijah. Holy Spirit, we need your presence. We need your ministry in this hour. Father, we haven't come to hear the words of a man, but to hear the words of of your breath. Paul told us that the scripture is God breathed. Lord, speak. Lord, speak. Lord, we lay our hearts open this morning. Speak. Speak, Holy Spirit. Cleanse my lips with the blood of Jesus this morning. Speak, oh God. We're desperate for your voice, God. It's not enough just for another nice sermon. Speak, God. It's not enough to go through the motions. We're not that kind of people. Speak, Holy Spirit. I need you, God. I desperately need your presence this morning. We love you, Jesus. You're worthy. Holy is the Lamb of God. You're slain before the foundation of the earth. Holy. In your name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. God's presence is sweet today. Dr. Walter Martin said, It's been wisely observed that a man who will not stand for something is quite likely to fall for almost anything. So I have elected to stand on the ramparts of biblical Christianity as taught by the apostles, defended by the church fathers, and rediscovered by the reformers. Walter Martin, you remember, rose to popularity in the 70s around the same time as the Jesus movement and he focused on apologetics. Apologetics is a branch of Christian study um, and evangelism and it comes from the Greek word which means to defend from First Peter chapter 3 verse 15 which says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. That's what the Greek word apologia. Walter Martin was an incredible Bible teacher, precise in his language and bold as anyone I've ever seen when it comes to confronting error. There's a famous clip of him on, on TBN, which is really funny. Um, speaking a guy, he's, he's speaking out, this is the 80s, against some, some prominent leaders in the church. Specifically, the Word of Faith movement for a moment liked to teach this, it was called Little God's Doctrine, that if you follow Jesus, that you were born again, then you were a little God, and the teaching was very goofy. Um, We're not gods. There's one triune God, um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and He alone is worthy of praise. He alone has power and glory and dominion. He is holy. I'm not a God. That's Mormonism, okay? Um, I will spend all of eternity enjoying the rich beauty of our God, and when my eyes see Him, I will bow to my face and declare, holy, holy, holy. I'm not like Him, not at all. And that's good news for you, my friend. 
Walter Martin went after that teaching on TBN, which was in the time um, known to have those teachers on the air. And so it was quite a controversy. And he didn't bow down at all. He was, he was a, a fierce man, not the kind of man you wanted to be in an argument with. I love a good controversy, y'all. Sometimes I think it's sinful, okay? We, I grew up in the age of, 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 what do you call that? Like TV that's real, you know what I'm saying? Like, reality, yeah, reality TV. I grew up in the white trash reality TV. I love a good white trash controversy. It's a problem in my heart. Martin uh, debated Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Seventh-day Adventists, Catholics on purgatory, the role of Mary. He brought his, he spent his entire life defending the truths of the gospel. His book, do you remember his book, Kingdom of the Cults? It's still a bestseller. It's a pretty thick one. It was the most, um, the most thorough work on the cult and um, defending the truth of Christianity as its time. And Walter Martin really paved the way for, their, we, have, we have quite a rich um, group of apologists Today, even young guys doing apologetics, and Walter Martin really paved the way for a lot of them. He was a gift to the church when, when doctrine in the church got really muddy. Died in 1989, but still influential. I was listening last week to a sermon. I was laying in bed trying to fall asleep, and y'all can't sleep because my mind doesn't stop thinking, so i got to put something on to listen to. And I was listening to Dr. Walt, Walter Martin last week, and he was uh, teaching from Timothy chapter 4, where Paul told Timothy, that there would be some in the last days who would go after the doctrine of demons. Paul said some will go after seducing spirits, the teaching of demons. He spent time walking through Paul's encounter with the fortune-telling girl in, in Acts chapter 6. Do you remember where Paul goes to Philippi and there's a girl following him, um, kind of mocking him, declaring these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation is what our English translation um, says, but Dr. Walter Martin pointed out that the Greek actually reads, um, they proclaim to you a way of salvation, not the way of salvation. The implication being that Jesus is a way amongst many. And he goes on to systematically and concisely boil down some root teachings, what he calls, using the language of Paul, the doctrine of demons or um, occultic teaching. He said when you boil down um, all of the of the cults, the false teachings, that there, there's always kind of a grouping of teachings that are common. And, and, and one of those things he said, was that Jesus is always a way, but he's not the way. He called it the teaching of demons. In other words, Dr. Walter Martin spent his life defending the doctrines specifically surrounding the person of Jesus, who is Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses say that he is Michael, the archangel, the brother of Lucifer. They're wrong. The Mormons say he's a son of God, and we can be sons of God like him. We can all be exalted like them. They're wrong. He is the unique son of God. The Muslims say he was a great prophet who pointed towards the coming of Muhammad. Wrong. He was not a great prophet who pointed towards the coming of Muhammad. Our culture says he's a good teacher that leads to a way of salvation. But I want to tell you this morning, there, our culture is wrong. He is not a way. He is the singular way to the Father. No man comes to the Father lest they come through the person of Jesus, which you believe about Jesus matters, friend. So Walter Martin spent his life in debate and controversy as he proclaimed the scriptural presentation of Jesus. He is the way, not a way. He is fully God and fully man. He is one with the Father and the Holy Ghost from eternity past. He is not created, but he has always been in perfect union with the, with the other two persons of the Trinity. He is not a good teacher. He is the manifestation of truth itself. He is God in the flesh.
The life of Walter Martin showed us that if we intend to really stand for the truth, we ought to get used to the idea of having a bit of controversy in life. Jesus says, I've come to bring a sword. There'll be division. You'll be hated because of me. Those who defend the pure doctrinal presentation of the person of Jesus will be rejected by this world. Jesus said, if they reject you, remember first that they rejected me. And as we approach the church at Philadelphia this morning in Revelation chapter 3, we'll find a church who Jesus calls powerless, weak, but faithful to proclaim his name. We'll find no rebuke this morning to the church of Philadelphia. We'll only find pleasure. Jesus is not displeased. He is not frustrated with their feelings of weakness nor powerlessness. He is immensely satisfied with their boldness to cling to the truth in the face of rejection. He tells them, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Jesus says to a church that defended his name and has been rejected for it, I am the one who holds the keys of David. I open a door to you that no man can shut. You may be rejected by your community. You may be rejected by the religious leaders. You may feel like outcast. You may feel like you're unworthy and unwelcome. But I open a door to you that no man can shut. Let's read our text, Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I shall write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One, they are weak. Philadelphia as a city is known for earthquakes. They had some rather dramatic earthquakes at the turn of the, um, what do you call that? AD 17, what do you call it when you change from AD to BC? I don't know. BC, B, whoo, y'all, my mind ain't working today. AD 17, they had a really bad earthquake, okay? History tells us that the people who lived in the cities had cracks in the walls of their homes businesses, they often had tremors after an earthquake for days. Archaeologists tell us that most had left the city and began to love in the, live in the rural farmlands, primarily growing vineyards in the volcanic soil that surrounded the city. The city wasn't known for prestige, it was known for hardship. And Jesus says to the church, you have little power. Even yet, you have not denied my name. What does powerless mean here when Jesus describes his church? I don't think it refers to the power of the Holy Spirit in their midst. 
I think it refers to their prominence, their political influence, their socioeconomic state. I think Jesus is saying you are not a strong and influential people. You are not the intellectual elites. You are not the strong political leaders of the city. Just humble people, most likely farming, making their wages in the vineyards. Yet Jesus says you have clung to the truth of the word and refused to deny my name. First, there are two observations that I'd like to point out immediately. One, the Davidic imagery. Jesus defines himself as the Holy One, the True One. These are titles that proclaim his divinity. Then he claims to have the key of David. Isaiah 20, 20, 22, 22 reads this, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, and he shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. This is a reference to Eliakim, who will have the key to the throne room of David, and by consequence, determine who is allowed to enter the king's court, and who is not allowed to enter the king's court. Davidic imagery. Next, we find that the church has conflict with the Jews of the region. Jews who are not Jews. Those who worship at the synagogue of Satan. If you're just jumping into this series, I just want to mention again that we don't believe in any way that this this, this supports anti-Semitism. We... we um, talked last week about the church at Sardis, and and Sardis, the church had no conflict with the Jews. There was no um, negative word about the Jews. Only two cities um, uh, is the the synagogue and the church in combat. And and we don't believe in any way that this is saying that we should be anti-Semitic. We just believe that these Jews in this region were persecuting the church, and Jesus says that they are not true Jews. In this city, the religious leaders thought that the Christians brought disgrace on Judaism by proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. The Christians brought disgrace on Judaism by, by claiming that Gentiles can be accepted into the kingdom of God. The Christians brought disgrace on historic Judaism by proclaiming that Gentiles are not only accepted, but they don't have to conform to the law of Moses, that they don't need to be circumcised and follow the feast, that Gentiles can belong to the family of God without jumping through the religious hoops. That's a disgrace to religious historic Judaism. The the religious leaders of this area are persecuting the Christians. These two observations, first, that Jesus identifies himself as the one who holds the keys of David, identifies himself as the the fulfillment of the Davidic promise, and as the one who holds the keys that, that allow people to either enter or be rejected into the courtroom of David, and the fact that the Christians are fighting with the Jews leads us to conclude that the Christians in the Jewish community in Philadelphia are in 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 turmoil over the person of Jesus. What do first, Christ, first century Christians and first century Jews have to argue about? Jesus. Whether or not he was the Messiah. Whether or not he was risen from the dead. We can't possibly overemphasize the first century understanding of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. It's very easy today to read the scriptures and think of Judaism as an entirely different religious practice and forget that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish promise. 
We forget that Jesus' name was not Jesus, but that's an English translation, but his name was Yeshua, derivative of the name of Joshua. That Mary's name was not Mary, it was Miriam, as in the sister of Moses. That Jesus' father's name was Joseph, as in the son of Jacob, who was sold into slavery in Egypt. The half-brother of Jesus who wrote the epistle of James, his name was not James, but the Greek New Testament clearly identifies him as Jacob. His name was Jacob. These are Jewish people arguing about the fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah. We've westernized the language and we often forget that early Christianity was closely related to Judaism. Many Christians still attending synagogue, especially the, especially the Jewish believers in Jesus, oftentimes still attending synagogue, still fulfilling the law. And Paul doesn't condemn that in any way. I think it's possible that Jewish individuals in this community came to accept Jesus as Messiah and were excommunicated and for, forbidden from um, communing with the, with, with the Jewish community. The confession of faith has led to rejection. But Jesus says that the Christians refuse to bow down in fear. They're powerless. They're not the, I, I don't think there's any reason to believe that they're intellectually elite. Jews of the day were raised on the scripture, man. From childhood, these Jews were taught the stories of David. They were taught the stories of Moses. They memorized large sections of the law of Moses. You think for a moment that these Gentile believers had memorized large sections of the law of Moses? They didn't speak Hebrew. They couldn't read Hebrew. They didn't understand the the historic rabbinic teaching. But they don't back down. And the debate goes on. Who is Jesus? Was he a false teacher? Did he fulfill the messianic promises? Were the apostles liars or honest men? What about the resurrection? Is the tomb empty or was the body stolen? These are the questions that floated around the atmosphere as the controversy raged, these are the questions that were whispered over dinner. These are the questions that were, that were asked in back alleys. What about Jesus? And all the church, although the church at Philadelphia was weak, most likely uneducated, most likely humble farmers, they, they keep the word and they have not denied his name. What does it mean for a church to keep his word and not deny his name? I think they clung to these fundamental truths. One, Jesus was born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7. Two, he was fully man and fully God, Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For us a child is born, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. A child is born to us who shall be called Mighty God. Three, he lived sinless, the spotless Lamb of God, fulfilling the sacrificial system. Four, he suffered on our behalf, dying a substitutionary death that fulfilled the sacrificial system for atonement. Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for 
our transgressions. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He rose from the dead. The tomb is empty. He ascended to the right hand of God. He is the way, the only way, as he proclaimed himself in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 7. He is coming again. These truths defined for them the faith, fulfilled the promise of the old covenant, and brought them forgiveness of sins and acceptance into God's kingdom. These truths were central, foundational, absolutes, bringing freedom to all who embraced them. They together built the foundation of the gospel message. But with truth came persecution. With truth came slander. With truth came rejection. With truth came controversy. And even when it felt like they were losing the fight, even when they were very aware of their powerlessness, when they looked at the culture and looked at their community and said, it feels like hell has taken over and and sexual immorality is rampant and, and we're not really gaining traction. It feels like we're weak and powerless. They still didn't quit. Even when they sat at the dinner table and were argued down and they felt like they didn't have answers to these big philosophical questions. And when they had a public conversation with maybe a Jewish leader and they they couldn't respond to a textual um, um, proposition that was proposed to them. Even when they, they didn't have an answer, they didn't back down. They said, I just know what I know. Verse 10, Jesus says, you kept my word about patient endurance. Patient endurance. You know, patient endurance doesn't always feel like you're winning. I'm not running through the finish line and the rope's not breaking across my chest. And I'm like, I'm patient. And again, we talk a lot about the, 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 the imagery in Scripture um, of the gospel being seed and sowing. Like, it's the same thing. Like, like farming isn't, you sow it and, oh, we, we have fruit to eat. It's wonderful. That's not patience at all. We're sowing the gospel into this community and into our culture, and it feels like hell is having her way in this hour. Are you, will you patiently endure? As I prayed and thought this week, I meditated on this passage quite a bit. And I couldn't help but draw a distinction between those who preserve orthodoxy and those who promote orthodoxy. I think we have many in the evangelical church in the West that refuses to deny the fundamentals of the truth. That's a start. Many churches who cling to the authority of Scripture, that's a start. I don't think the church at Philadelphia only clung to the truth of Scripture. I think they proclaimed the truth of Scripture. I don't think they preserved orthodoxy. I think they promoted orthodoxy. 
I don't think they sat in a circle and sung kumbaya and taught the scriptures to each other and taught it to their kids and just stayed at home in the living room. I think they got up in the morning, they went to work, and they engaged people in the conversations. Have you heard that Jesus healed the sick? Did you hear that he raised the dead? Did you hear that he said that he would be crucified and then get up out of his grave? Do you know that the tomb is empty? I think if they sat around and sang kumbaya and hung, held hands and just proclaimed the truth to one another, I don't think they would have the controversy that they had. Many churches in our day are preserving orthodoxy. By God, let's promote it. Their faith is not in the closet. They don't trust Jesus for themselves and let every man fend for, them, for their own. They understand that the kingdom of God is fundamentally on the offense. And I am desperate, utterly desperate for us as a church to grab hold of this revelation. The kingdom of God is offensive. And belonging to the kingdom means that you are an advancer of the kingdom. Not merely a preserver. We need to preserve good doctrine. Don't hear me say that we need to abandon doctrine. I'm saying let's preserve good doctrine. Let's teach good doctrine. And then let's actually share it with people. You hear me? Let's actually like see the kingdom grab our city. Let's proclaim the truth that Jesus got up out of the grave and see demonic principalities come and bow their knee before the church. Let's proclaim the truth of the gospel and watch demonically oppressed people find freedom in the precious blood of Jesus. Let's get passionate about this gospel and for heaven's sake, let's recognize that we're on the offense and not the defense alone. Christians who understand that we're on the offense, they put their hands on the plow and they push and they get to work. They don't pray, oh God, preserve us alone. They say, oh God, you are able and you are willing to see this entire city flipped upside down for the glory of Jesus. He is worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. He shed his most holy and precious blood in order to buy sinners for himself. Do it, Holy Ghost, for Jesus' glory. I think this church had meaningful conversations. How are your conversations this morning? We need to learn to have conversations with our community. Start with the good old-fashioned, how's your day? Start asking questions, developing relationships, listening for prayer requests. Pray, ask the Holy Ghost for a moment to begin to share the gospel. Try to engage people that look different than you. Do you realize there are people in this community who look different than us? And do you realize that they need Jesus as much as we need Jesus? Do you realize that this scripture, specifically this book of Revelation, says that on the last day, every tribe, nation, and tongue will declare the glory of Jesus? Do you realize that you don't need to just talk to people that look like you, dress like you, and are in your same economic class? But there are people who need Jesus that we pass by every day? And that the blood of Jesus was not just for white people. The blood of Jesus was not just for Hispanics. The blood of Jesus was not just for African Americans. But the blood of Jesus is for every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And we do not have a corner market on the gospel, friend. Start talking to people. What holds us back? Honestly. We're scared of rejection. For heaven's sake, we're already rejected by the world, man. Fear, intimidation, 
Now, the church at Philadelphia was rejected, and they weren't afraid of its sting. I want you to know this morning that Jesus is worth the sting of rejection. Following Jesus is worth the stigma. Some of you are new in your walk with Jesus. I want you to know there's a stigma, but following Jesus is so worth it. If you really want to be crucified with Christ, you'll have to learn to embrace the stigma that comes with being a dead man. There's a stink to the world. Philadelphia is rejected. Jesus says to them, the door is open. I open a door for you that no man can close. First, Jesus alone holds the keys to the throne room of God. And all hell can yell, scratch, call, but if Jesus opens the door, the door is open. And the Christians in this community, I think, by the Jews are called heretics, liars, unintelligent, biblically illiterate, but Jesus calls them welcome. Again, they couldn't read the Hebrew of the Old Covenant. They weren't familiar with rabbinic teaching, but the door was open. No man, woman, culture, religious group has the keys to the throne room of God. Jesus alone. Again, I want to honor our Jewish roots and we love and support Israel. This is in no way, um, no way a condemnation or anti-Semitic statement. I'm just talking about this, this group in this city. But the fight here seems to be between the Jews of this city telling the Christians that they had no place in the New Jerusalem. They could not enter the kingdom. They didn't belong. They were unfit. They hadn't jumped through the appropriate hoops. They, were, they weren't raised on the stories of old. They were not welcome, not invited. And Jesus says, I open the door to you, and one day they will come and bow before you at the revelation that I love you fiercely. I want you to know that there are many who will knock on your door and claim authority and pronounce their exclusive right to God and your rejection and your response with the church of Philadelphia should be, no, Jesus holds the keys of David, not you. Again, I think there were Jewish Christians in this community who had been excommunicated from the synagogue and from their families. And I think what Jesus is saying is profound. You're excommunicated from your family and from your synagogue, but I am the king of the new Jerusalem, which my father will bring. I hold the keys to the city and to the holy of holies, and I open the door to you. They can call you unwelcome, but I call you welcome. They can say, you don't belong. I have the keys of David. There are Gentiles who have surrendered their life to Jesus, abandoned their pagan gods to serve Yahweh. And the Jews say, you have no place. If you'd like to become a proselyte, receive circumcision, learn how to properly celebrate the feast, then you can come. Jesus says, I'm the God of all nations. Every tribe and every tongue will profess my beauty. And I open a door that no man can close. I want to say to some of you this morning that there, there it is in the same way a religious spirit um, in our day that says to many who are trying to come to Jesus that you've 
forgive me for using this word, you've screwed up for too long, you've gone too far, you haven't jumped through all the appropriate religious hoops in order to receive the, the kingdom. Maybe you've got tattoos, maybe you had a child out of wedlock, maybe you have some addiction issues that you're still wrestling through. You don't know the religious lingo. Jesus says, receive me as Lord and you are welcome. A religious spirit can call you a failure, call you unworthy, may call you unsuccessful, may call you unclean. But let me tell you, the blood of Jesus has power and it's working to wash the stains of the darkest sin. The blood of Jesus is capable. The blood of Jesus is able and the heart of Jesus is willing to whoever will come may come. Oh, they said the same things to Mary Magdalene. They complained when Jesus hung out with Matthew, the tax collector. To all who are willing, come. I hold the keys of David, and I open a door for you that no man can close. At the crucifixion, you remember the veil was separated. The separated the holy of holies was torn from the top to bottom. No man could tear it from the top to bottom because it was a rather large veil. And it it wasn't torn from the bottom up as if a man got down and cut it and and pulled it. But it was as if the hand of God split the thing right down the middle. And there was a declaration at the crucifixion that, that communion with God is now available by the blood of Jesus. Not by your works. Not by your jumping through my religious hoops. Not by you looking like me. Not by you not having tattoos. Not by you not having sexual affairs in your past, only by submitting to Jesus and receiving him as Lord, you are welcome to come and commune with the holy God of Israel. And no man can shut the door that the blood of Jesus opened. Jesus says in John chapter 3 that all who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. All who are found in him are new creations. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're welcome. You're accepted. You're clean. Not because of what you've done. You're clean because of the cross of Christ 2,000 years ago where blood was spilt for you that was precious and holy The door is open wide to you this morning despite your failures, your heritage. Your mom may have had you out of wedlock. Your parents may have been involved in an extra sexual affair. You may have grown up poor and weak and tired. You may have have, have looked at pornography and been addicted at a young age or, or, or done things that you're utterly embarrassed of. And I, I just want to say to you one more time, the door is open. It's not Bilbo Baggins' little round door that Gandalf's got to jump scrunch down to walk through. It's not a dog door. You don't have to get on your knees and elbows and crawl through the thing. You don't have to grovel. Worship team, you can go ahead and come. The final thing is that that most scholars make this point. The open door seems to be a promise that they'll have divine opportunity and anointing and missionary expansion. The door is open to the Philadelphians to enter in to have fellowship with the Holy God of Israel. And the door is open for them to bring their guests, to invite their families, their neighbors, their friends, their co-workers 
Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul wrote, uh, he wrote, concluding the book of Colossians, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. First Corinthians 16, verse 9 reads this, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. This was Pauline language that Paul used often. He referred to an, a missionary opportunity as an open door and scholars say that they think that Jesus was was using this language some too. He wasn't just saying the door is open for you to come and have fellowship. That was first and foremost what he was saying, but he was also saying I have opened it for you to invite whoever will come your drunk mama if she'll receive me as Lord she can come the prostitute if she'll come and repent in faith and receive me as Lord she's welcome your co-worker who lies and steals if they'll come to me they're welcome Jesus is saying don't quit inviting people man the door is open keep inviting people I want to say to you this morning, keep inviting people into the kingdom of God. We are on the offense. We are not on the defense. If you have been born again, you have a work that's set before you. You are called to advance the kingdom of heaven. It's not just my work. I know i got a microphone in my hand and a title. But the scripture says that, that the saints are to do the work of the ministry. You will stand before God on the last day. And it's my greatest mission that you hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. My greatest mission. You're called to some work, man. Jesus says, the door is open. Bring everyone who will come, anyone who will receive me. Don't be timid in your inviting. Don't worry about the way your friends are dressed. If they stink, bring them. Some of y'all stink. The door is open. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed weekend.